Sooner or later, you can bet your life that every Jew in this building is going to say the same thing. He's a little too Jewish for my taste. <laughs> Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Daniel Gross, author of A Banker's Journey, How Edmund J. Safra Built a Global Financial Empire. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2jewishradio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2jewishradio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom. Purim is coming up next week. We have a big pre-Purim event. Purim for Grown-Ups 2 at my own congregation, Beit Simcha, this Saturday night, March 4th, which brings to mind the famous nine-word summary of every Jewish holiday from December to April, which includes Hanukkah, Purim, and Pesach, all in nine words. They tried to kill us, we survived, let's eat. They tried to kill us, we survived, let's eat. It's a kind of standard Jewish refrain that's allowed us to maintain our optimism through 2,000 years of dedicated persecutions of all kinds. Our enemies, we always have those, have been committed to our destruction for so long that most of them have disappeared. But we continue to worship one God in our own way. I have a t-shirt. I bought one for my dad, too, that shows the list of empires that have persecuted the Jews and are now just dusty footnotes to history while we continue on. The ancient Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, the Spanish Empire, the Tsars, the Nazis, the Soviet Union, and so on. All of them long gone while we survive. In fact, you could include many other long-collapsed imperial powers in the list that persecuted, exiled, or massacred Jews, and we've outlived them all. This internalized understanding that persecution cannot destroy Jews and Judaism is a testament to our dedication and persistence. It's a powerful reminder that our commitment to the idea that belief in one God and dedication to a moral religion that taught the world that love for our neighbors, married to a commitment to justice, is central to human values and all civilization, well, they are at the heart of what it means to be truly good. Still, while that Jewish conceptual framework has sustained us for so long, the feeling that persecution by those different from us is an eternal element in the Jewish story has some troubling side effects. When we internalize the idea that non-Jews are always out to get us, but we are clever enough most of the time to defeat them, or at least outwit them and survive, we build into our understanding of the world a defensive, protective quality that sees everybody different from us as a potential danger to our very survival. It would be Pollyannish to pretend that this cannot actually prove true. After all, in an era when anti-Semitism is increasing in America, 
when some openly violent acts against Jews have been added to the evil rhetoric that has risen in temperature and quantity over the past eight years, denying that we Jews need to keep our guard up is just irresponsible. But the idea that we are always under the threat of large, unprovoked attack, that the United States Jewish community is at the same state of potential danger that the German Jewish community was in the 20s and 30s, well, that's preposterous. And believing that Israel is constantly under existential threat to its very continuance is just as preposterous. In fact, it's been preposterous for decades. More importantly, focusing solely on the danger posed by potential anti-Semitic threats from regimes, shadowy movements, and deranged individuals as the main thrust of Jewish identity formation is truly counterproductive. Spending all of our Jewish communal time, attention, and money defending ourselves against perceived threats ultimately is deeply damaging to the development of new, vital, attractive, and fulfilling and affirmative Jewish life. Look, I love Hanukkah and Purim and Pesach, but the truth is that while these holidays do celebrate the survival of our people at times of genuine threats, the holidays themselves are an affirmation of the joy and purpose of active, committed Jewish life. Purim, coming up next week, is a spring blowout festival, the kind of joyous celebration of silliness so essential to human enjoyment. Every culture has to blow off steam to glory in the fun aspects of life from time to time, and that's really what Purim is for. So when we cheer Esther and Mordechai Saturday night and then Monday and boo Haman well, this year we should enjoy a drink or two and hamantaschen or three and appreciate how wonderful Judaism and Jewish life really can be and glory not just in our survival, but in our celebration of what is truly good in life. To play us in on the theme of Purim, here's a parody. These have been traditional on Purim for like 700 years. On the theme of Haman, and those who try to destroy our people. It's a very funny version from a few years ago called The Haman Remembrance, a Muppet Takeoff. Why are there so many songs about Haman when we should be blotting his name? Haman's a villain, the worst one in Shushan. He made Mussolini look tame His childhood idols were all genocidal He'd kill on a brief passing whim But someday we'll blot out the Haman remembrance And stop dressing kids up like him this year let's all keep our shirts on Have we been half asleep and have we heard Graggers? They're spinning around in my brain We've tried to drown him out 
for thousands of years now and maybe gone kind of insane we've heard it too many times to ignore it in parodies tasteless and flat but someday we'll blot out the Haman remembrance Vet Parshandata, Vet Alfon, Vet Asvata, Vet Purata, Vet Adalia, Vet Aridata, Vet Parmashta, Vet Arisai, Vet Aridai, Vet Vaisata. And stop baking treats like his hat. Lie, da, die, die, da, die, die. Lie, die, 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 our guest on Two Jewish This Morning, Daniel Gross, has explored the life of an important Jewish figure, Edmund J. Safra, the founder of several banks, a major philanthropist, and a key supporter of Sephardic culture all around the world. Learn about Safra from Daniel Gross in just a moment when we come back on Two Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. We are delighted to welcome to Two Jewish our guest this morning. Daniel Gross has written a variety of books on financial affairs and Jews. His new book is called A Banker's Journey, How Edmund J. Safra Built a Global Financial Empire, and it's fascinating. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Tell us why um, a book on Edmund Safra now. Well, uh, there's, there's never a bad time for a great story. Um, Edmund Stafford lived from 1932 to 1999, so he's been deceased for 23 years, but his story um, has never been told. It's a remarkable, you know, the book is called The Banker's Journey. It's a guy who was born in Beirut, went to Milan at the age of 15, um, founded banks on three different continents, became a billionaire many times over, was a leading Jewish philanthropist, but also had this particular relationship to the Syrian and Lebanese Jewish communities, where he was a kind of, say, a Rothschild, a Buffett, and a Schindler all rolled into one, you know, a sort of personal protector, sponsor, advocate uh, for individuals in these communities uh, and for the Sephardic communities as a whole. You know, the story of being Jewish in the 20th century is one of disruption and displacement. And of course, in Europe, 1930s, 1940s, in much of the Arab world, it wasn't until the 1950s, 60s, and 70s that a lot of this happened. And th those stories are less frequently told. So that the story of Edmund Stafford's life is really, it's the business story of how this man created this global banking empire with these very successful banks, um, how his style of banking was informed by the type of banking that his grandparents did in Aleppo in the 19th century, and what he did with his wealth, which was to support Jewish causes, Jewish people uh, from the Middle East, but ultimately around the world. And then his legacy, because he left behind this foundation that had spent the last 20-something years promoting Jewish life and education and continuity um, in all parts of the world as well. 
And so when I was, I got a phone call 2017 asking if I knew who Edmund Saffer was, would I be interested in looking at this archive that his foundation had, which was papers going back to the 1930s and 1940s in seven different languages, but also transcripts of interviews with hundreds of people who knew him during his lifetime. I saw that as an immense, uh, very powerful resource to tell a great story that has been told in very small bits and pieces, but never comprehensively. You know, uh, he came from a Chalabi community, the, the Alawites, the Jews uh, of Aleppo. Um, but of course, he his family had already left there f- seeking safety in Beirut, which sounds strange today, but was certainly true back then. Um, that's a very interesting community in and of itself, a very tight-knit community. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Well, sure. You know, Aleppo, the Halabis, as you mentioned, one of the Jewish communities with the longest-standing presence in a single place. So right. Aleppo in the Bible is referred to as Aram Tzorah. The great synagogue of Aleppo uh, has a cornerstone that goes to the 3rd century. The Aleppo Codex, which is one of the oldest uh, versions of the Torah that exists, of the Bible, actually, uh, you know, it's extraordinary text. Yes, yeah, sorry. Was the sort of crown of, of, of that community. Right. Um, so the Jews of Aleppo, you know, they had their own rabbinic dynasty, their cancellations. Um, this was a center, you know, never that big as far as numbers, but a very important place in Jewish history. Uh, the Halabi community, they are you know, merchants and traders. They started dispersing to Manchester, England, to Milan, to... Egypt to South America. We're talking now 19th century, early 20th century, forming trade networks. And of course, the largest concentration started coming to New York in the 1910s and 1920s. And among those people were my own grandparents and great grandparents. On my mother's side, um, we have names like Nasser and Dweck. And sure. my great grandparents were born in Aleppo in the, the 1890s. Um, I knew that I knew one of them and can still recall that particular accent. Uh, Halabi Jews, uh, they acculturate, but they don't assimilate. So you drop them in Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, they will understand how to negotiate the local context, but they will go to their own synagogue, uh, marry their kids to other members of the same community. You know, in, in the U.S., uh, the overwhelming majority of Syrian Jews all still live in a particular area in Brooklyn. Right. And a particular town in New Jersey in the summer and a particular town in Florida. Uh, in the winter, in the winter, uh, right? This is a hundred years after having left Aleppo, they still have this very strong identity, and that's what you know. Edmund Safra, in his life and his family, also you know, he had multiple identities. He would tell you that he was a Halabi, he had uh, Lebanese citizenship that he held clung very strongly to. He had Brazilian citizenship. He was a resident in Geneva. He lived in Monaco. He founded a bank in New York. He could function in all these contexts. Brazil, you know, really extraordinary. Um, uh, we will talk much more with Daniel Gross. <laughs> There's so much to talk about when we come back uh, in just a moment here on Two Jewish. Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in northwest Tucson in the Catalina foothills 
has a great array of services, classes, and events this winter and spring. Established by passionate congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives daily to serve God with joy. Progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area. Weekly Shabbat services, Friday night and Saturday morning, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming are all featured. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. All the details are on our website, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A, Tucson.org, Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary in person. Call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675. Religious school for school-aged children and grandchildren is available. You can join our fabulous Hebrew school, bar and bat mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes experience, confirmation and teen programs, and a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to Beit Simcha Tucson, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org to sign up. Beit Simcha services, classes, and events are open to everyone. Friday night services are at 6.30 p.m. Shabbat morning services are at 10 a.m. preceded by Torah study at 9 a.m. All with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan leading them. Facebook page is Beit Simcha Tucson, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson. And our musical services are all there Friday night and Saturday morning. All of our Adult Education Academy classes are available live and on Zoom. Our wonderful religious school is also available in blended format. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org. Purim is nearly here this coming Saturday night. Join us for a raucous, delightful holiday when all restrictions are lifted at our Purim for Grown-Ups 2, Bigger and Better. We'll feature gourmet hamantash and wine, beer, spirits, a fabulous risque Purim parody show, poker and blackjack, gambling for prizes, all kinds of fun. It's this Saturday night, March 4th, 7.30 p.m., BeitSimchaTucson.org. You can sign up there. For more information about Beit Simcha, to come to services, religious school, Torah Tykes programs, bar and bat mitzvah, confirmation, high school programs, rich array of adult education academy courses, live and on Zoom, and all of our services in person and on Facebook, go to B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org or call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675. BeitSimchaTucson.org. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, the fastest growing and most dynamic Jewish congregation in all of Southern Arizona in its exciting beginning years. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, McFetch or Ekfell, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. Or visit our website, twojewishradio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through our website, streaming us from twojewishradio.com, or download us from the Apple iTunes Store's podcast, Top 10 in North America, Gordon Moment Magazine, over 175,000 downloads on Podbean, and on Spotify, too. Post a rating. Please review Two Jewish wherever you listen to us. All those comments help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation. 
known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen. 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, Our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. So there's a new movie out uh, that you want to talk about. Um, Tell us about it. Well, I'm ambivalent about talking about it because it has been extremely controversial. It's called You People. And it is a way in which one group of people describes another sort of derisively. It says, You People. Um, and it's a frequent intro to a, an anti-Semitic trope, like you people think you run everything. Yeah, so, so this is the movie about uh, the, the Jewish kid, who kid, he's not a kid, right? Um, it's played by Jonah Hill, who's probably in his 40s or something, but uh, plays a guy in his 30s who connects with an African-American with a black woman and the relationship of the two families, which is... Um, uncomfortable, I would say, from the beginning. Well, particularly in the case of one parent from each family. Um, Jonah Hill's mother, who's played by Julie Louise Dreyfus, is that her name? Yeah, Julie Louis Dreyfus, right. Right, her. Um, And his father is David Duchovny. Um, And the African-American woman... Um, I don't remember who plays her mother, but her father is Eddie Murphy. Right. And it's one of the least funny roles you'll ever see Eddie Murphy in. And it's really not funny, actually. <laughs> well, no, the thing is, at times this movie purports to be a comedy, and there are a lot of great comedic lines and moments, although many of them are old stereotypes hauled out of the closet. It feels like you know we're going back to the 40s or 50s. Um, it's also, it's a very American movie because, you know, America is one of the few countries where, um, cultures both clash and connect and interact. And a lot of this is about, it's almost a, a parody of wokeness. Yeah. Oh, I think it is kind of, although there's a lot of wokeness to it actually. Well, but there's a lot of, at least from the Jewish side, which obviously 
we both know way better than what things look, feel like from a black American perspective. Um, from the Jewish side, there's a lot of sort of lamentation that being Jewish in America has become so devoid of any religion or religious affiliation or religious behaviors. It's more a question of like what you eat and also obnoxious stereotypes, but nothing to do with the reality of being Jewish. And the in a way, the movie sounds alarm bells for the future of American Judaism if not also for the future of America writ large, because so many minority populations who were historically marginalized, but we thought we reached a period in the 60s with JFK and the civil rights movement and all that, we thought we reached a period when that marginalization was diminishing, if not ending. And now it just seems to be on the rise, and every marginal group feels more marginal and more threatened. It does seem that way. Um, you know, it, it's funny that this movie seems kind of devoid of spirituality, if you will, when it starts with a Yom Kippur service. I, I did I did watch some of the film um, the other night while my new daughter was, you know, not sleeping, uh, which meant nobody was. And, um, you know, it's, it's such, it's, it's kind of a accurate and yet also highly, parodic version of American Judaism that we're watching. Right. Maybe we have become parodies of ourselves to a large degree, and that's kind of what it's saying. Yeah. So there's there's a wide range of reactions to this film. Some people see it as blatantly anti-Semitic. I think that's wrong or simple-minded. I think it is trying to describe a moment in time in which all of us who are minorities in any way, shape, or form are feeling increasingly less comfortable in this country. Tom, thanks very much. Um, maybe this melting pot has become, well, I don't know what it's become. We will uh, talk next week. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie new, brought to you by Too Jewish as a public service. An interfaith initiative selects a priest, a rabbi, and an imam to go to space and relate the experience of orbiting the globe from a religious perspective. It's an international sensation, and when the space mission lands, the press is on the scene to get a statement from each of the leaders. The priest comes out glowing and says, It's like I saw the Lord himself. The imam comes out glowing too and proudly announces, What an amazing experience. Praise Allah. The rabbi comes out, however, disheveled, breathing heavily, exhausted, so weak he can barely stand. The reporter says, I, I see you didn't enjoy your experience. The rabbi replies, enjoy. Oy vey, every 30 minutes, shachris, minachamarev, shachris, minachamarev, on with the tefillin, off with the tefillin, on with the tefillin, off with the tefillin. You see, uh, that's the phylacteries, the tefillin, you have to wind around your arm and Put on your head and no, never mind. That was the old Jewish joke, the week special feature of Two Jewish just for you. You should live and be well.
And now a word of Torah. This week we read the portion of Titzaveh in the book of Exodus, a ritually oriented parsha, which gives the commandment to create a ner tamid, an eternal light for the tabernacle in the wilderness. That tabernacle was the very first sanctuary of the people of Israel. Although technically speaking, the tabernacle, the Mishkan, was a very elaborate portable tent. It was also the place where God's presence in the form of the Shekhinah resided. Last week in Truma, our ancestors were asked to create this sacred space through the voluntary gifts of their hearts, and this week we're told there should be a continual fire, a ner tamid, a constant light shining there, a sign of God's faithful and permanent presence in our midst. Revealingly, that light must be created and kindled by us, not God. We must build the altar and the fire and continue to feed and nurture it to keep it alive. And if you have ever kept a fire burning round the clock, say at a camp out or bonfire or for heat in a cold winter's night in some frigid clime, you know just how much fuel you need to do it. You're always either stoking it or bringing in more wood for it to burn. If neglected for any length of time, that fire burns out. The Ner Tamid was not just a symbol, but a process, requiring regular care and feeding to flourish. Our own spiritual life is rather like that ancient Ner Tamid. If we wish God's presence to illumine our lives, to give us warmth and comfort, then we too must feed our own Ner Tamid, must gently and regularly add spiritual fuel to the flame. Religious experiences, prayer, meditation, introspection, blessings, personal and communal rituals, time for breathing and allowing God into our lives, all of these help feed the fire. And they must be done with regularity, or our own internal, eternal lights may, well, will go out. The Ner Tamid, that ancient light, is found today in every synagogue in the world, no matter how humble the shul or how grand the temple. While today we simply pay the electric bills to keep it alive, even that requires a bit of active participation, but its symbolic purpose is much greater. The Ner Tamid burns always to remind us that God is with us always. If only we take the time to feed our own spiritual fires regularly. When we come back in a moment, our guest this morning, Daniel Gross, a financial expert and author of the new book on Edmund J. Safra, will tell us why he's such a pivotal and important figure in contemporary Jewish history. Find out when we come back in a moment on Too Jewish. We continue with our Too Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. The Israeli government's controversial judicial transformation effort cleared a major hurdle when the Knesset voted to advance a key piece of the plan last week. The 63-47 to vote followed a second week of mass protests outside the Knesset in Jerusalem. The bill was introduced by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's governing coalition, 
which took office in December. It would give the Israeli governing coalition full control over the appointment of judges and bar the Supreme Court from striking down basic laws. Those are Israel's closest parallel to a constitution. The bill now returns to discussion in parliamentary committees of the Knesset ahead of two more votes, which generally occur close together and would pass the bill into law. In addition to pushing the bill forward, this vote was a signal that the coalition has majority support in the Knesset. Members of the government have called for further limits on the court, including a measure that would significantly curtail the court's ability to strike down Knesset laws. This vote occurred in the face of a series of mass protests against the change in Israel, and despite the warnings of a chorus of world leaders, legal scholars, and public intellectuals that it will harm Israel's standing as a democracy. Israeli President Isaac Herzog called for compromise over the reform plan last week and said in a pained speech he feared the battle over the legislation would lead to constitutional and social collapse. Recently, sounds of alarm have come from Tom Nides, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, who said last week the Israeli government should pump the brakes on court reform. President Joe Biden has also criticized the plan. In addition, a group of 15 major North American Jewish philanthropists signed an open letter last week saying they were deeply troubled by this attempt to curtail the independence of the judiciary. And the Umbrella Organization of Jewish Federations, which is always loath to criticize any Israeli government, sent a letter urging Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to drop elements of this controversial plan in what he calls um, judicial reform, quote-unquote. Last week, the Jewish Federations of North America sent an open letter to Netanyahu and Yair Lapid, leader of the parliamentary opposition in Knesset, opposing the proposed change that would allow a bare majority of Israeli lawmakers to override Supreme Court rulings. Israel's parliament, Knesset, has 120 seats. One piece of the plan would allow just 61 members to negate court decisions that strike down laws that they believe to be, well, illegal. Lapid opposes the whole thing. The bill gives members of the coalition a majority on the nine-seat panel that appoints judges to the Supreme Court. Unlike the U.S. government, in which separate elections for Senate and President allow for a potential check on the executive's power to appoint judges, the Israeli governing coalition is comprised of a majority of its legislature and alone would wield discretion over judicial appointments. Lapid, the leader of the parliamentary opposition, tweeted, Members of the coalition, history will judge you tonight. For the damage to democracy, for the damage to the economy, for the damage to security, for the fact that you're tearing the people of Israel to pieces and you just don't care. In a speech on the Knesset floor, Netanyahu accused the opposition of going off the rails, criticized the protests. He defended the bill as the work of a democratically elected government. In a democracy, the people vote in elections, and representatives of the people vote here in the Knesset, Netanyahu said. That's called democracy. The leaders of the protests, unfortunately, are trampling democracy. They don't accept the outcome of the election. They don't accept the decision of the majority. Finance Minister Bitsalal Smotrich, head of the far-right extremist religious Zionism party and an ally of Netanyahu, tweeted a shorter message, What you elect is what you get. In fact, the Netanyahu coalition did not really run on a platform of attacking the Israeli judicial system or eliminating the balance of power in Israeli democracy. 
Most observers see this effort as an attempt to remove the anti-corruption work of the judiciary from the political equation in Israel, freeing Netanyahu and some of his allies from accountability for their own corruption. In other words, Bibi is taking down the Israeli judiciary because they had the chutzpah to go after him for what most people would view as fairly minor corruption. Well, never let it be said that politics in a democracy is not also personal. Some of the rhetoric around this political coup against the Israeli judiciary is stressed that it is an effort to make Israel an autocracy and a totalitarian state. That isn't particularly accurate, although it would increase the influence of the party in power over appointments to courts, something that is kind of routine in the U.S. and Great Britain. I mean, there is some check on that, but that's not how it has worked in Israel currently. This effort to damage and perhaps destroy judicial authority and independence in Israel is a terrible idea, and it doesn't warrant the kind of effort Bibi and his coalition are putting forth in it especially because it seems extremely likely that Netanyahu's true motivation may be to get himself out of criminal hot water. But do not be surprised if it goes through over the next few months, even though it's a terrible idea. In other news, the ugly scandal surrounding the founder of the Leo Beck Rabbinical College in Germany, Walter Homolka, got uglier still last week. Allegations of abuse of power by both Rabbi Homolka and his husband led to his resignations from a variety of German-Jewish organizations, including the seminary, last year. Now, it appears that Homolka plagiarized over 60 pages of his doctoral dissertation, from a German scholar's article that he simply translated into English and included in his dissertation without any attribution. The dissertation at King's College London was subsequently published by Hamulka as a book, and he added a little bit of attribution there. Look, it's considered plagiarism to quote long sections, let alone 60 straight pages from another author in any language, without quoting them directly. The investigation into whether Homolka abused his power at the Abraham Geiger College and Seminary in Germany and in his other positions of authority, well, that will be published in the coming weeks. In Turkey, the remaining Jews of Antakya have been transferred to Istanbul. They will be staying in a Jewish nursing home there thanks to a collaboration between the Turkish Jewish community, a Kazakh Israeli billionaire, and Israel's fundraising organization, Karen Hayasud. While there have been a variety of ways for survivors to leave Turkey in the wake of last week's horrifying earthquake that killed over 40,000 people, Antakya's Jews were helped by Alexander Machkevich, a Jewish-Israeli businessman from Kazakhstan who's a billionaire. Even in the most difficult days following the disaster, members of Turkey's Jewish community discovered a unity which has characterized the Jewish people throughout the generations, said Machkevich. I am honored to take part in this joint effort with Karen Hayasod to help our fellow Jews from Antakya and hopefully give them an opportunity to rise from the ruins to rebuild their families and restore community life. Our hearts are with the Turkish people during this difficult time with hope for a full recovery for the wounded and the rebuilding of the area. Despite their small numbers, Antakya's Jewish community is known for being strongly traditional. Antakya was one of the areas hardest hit by the earthquake that ravaged Turkey and Syria last week. Among the dead, accounted for so far, were the president of Antakya's Jewish community, Shaul Chenidiolu, and his wife Fortuna. 
Jews have been present in Antakya, known in antiquity as Antioch, for nearly 2,500 years since its founding under the Seleucid Empire. Though several hundred Jews lived in the city in the 1940s, by last year their number had dwindled to just 14 people, the youngest of whom was more than 60 years old. Many worked in shops at the city's famed Long Bazaar. The Turkish Jewish community's president, Ishak Ibrahimzadeh, wrote on Twitter last week that the earthquake brought the end of a 2,500-year-old love story in Antakya. And that's the two Jewish news of Jews round the world. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome back to Two Jewish. Our guest this morning, Daniel Gross, is a financial and economic journalist. He was the executive editor of Strategy Plus Business Magazine, editor-in-chief, and has written a series of extraordinarily interesting books about an area that you would think was a little bit arcane, um, economics, um, economic bubbles, banks. His new book is called A Banker's Journey, newish book uh, from last year, How Edmund J. Safra Built a Global Financial Empire. Um, y- you mentioned uh, when talking about Safra, the, the, the famed Jewish bankers, the Rothschilds, there are some interesting similarities. Um, can you uh, discuss that just a little bit? Yeah, very much so. So the, the Safra family first starts to emerge on paper that you know, 1870s, 1880s, out of Aleppo. Uh, and they called themselves Safra Frere, which means the Safra Brothers in French. Uh, there were four of them. And at the time, the Ottoman Empire was a somewhat integrated um, economic unit. You could go and travel freely and trade freely throughout it. So one brother went to Alexandria, Egypt. One brother went to Istanbul. Uh, one went to Beirut. And one stayed in Aleppo. And they were working together. They did things like financing trade. 
literally like financing camel caravans going from Baghdad to Constantinople, uh, farmers who needed financing for their crops, uh, the textiles and linen trade, um, gold, which was the sort of, and, and silver were the main means of of exchange. Uh, so they were they were not a bank in the classic sense, but they were you know sort of financiers largely of trade um, with sort of branches in four different outposts of the Ottoman Empire, and they worked together. Um, but you know after World War One, the Ottoman Empire falls apart, replaced by British mandate in you know in what was Palestine. Uh, in Egypt and Iraq and French mandate in Syria and Lebanon. Turkey is now an independent entity. So that whole world kind of shatters to a degree. And, and they, four brothers, decide to um, essentially break up and go their own way. And ending the staff of Father Jacob decides in 1920 to move to Beirut, which is on the ascendant after World War One, whereas Aleppo, you know, lacking uh, ports, um, is turning into a bit of a backwater after World War One. Beirut is, you know, it had this really unique set of circumstances with the Christian Druze, Muslim, very cosmopolitan city, right, facing Europe, the, the Paris city. of the Middle East. I think it was yeah, called. Yeah, and all the all the money from the Persian Gulf. When you think about the oil industry, that's where it would come through Beirut. Uh, people would come there for entertainment and banking services, etc. So. Beirut was this like very interesting and hospitable hothouse for the 20s, 30s, and 40s and 50s for people like uh, the Safras who were involved in business and international trade. Safra's uh, banks were sold. There's an interesting controversy uh, between um, Safra and American Express. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, what I often say is that people know people know about Andy Safra is how he was attacked in his life, and they don't really know much about what he did or how he lived. Uh, there's a crazy episode in the late 80s, an entire book uh, called Vendetta by Brian Burrow, who's a, a preeminent business journalist, was written about this episode that is essentially one year in Evan Clapper's life. But the story there was that in uh, 1982, he sold one of his, his first private banks to American Express. American Express wanted to be in that market, and they wanted him to be part of their world. And of course, you know, Edmund Saffer in his own banks was a uh, sort of a king, an aristocrat. And here he was at American Express, and like they, they sort of thought he would be a manager of this division. But the relationship sort of didn't work. He leaves after a year. He has his other banks to tend to. And it's very clear that after his five-year non-compete, he's going to start a, another private bank in Switzerland. And American Express fears that all his you know Jewish clients are just going to go walk back to him once they open so they're taking some steps to try to stop him from opening in the legal system. They don't work. All of a sudden, the summer of 1988, articles start to appear in newspapers in Peru, in France, in Switzerland, in Italy, that say Edmund Sacker's a drug dealer. He's involved with the Medellin cartel. He's involved with Iran-Contra, um, you know, popping up all over the place. And Sacker does two things in response. He starts suing in European courts to get people to take this stuff down. And he hires uh, private investigators to look into this. And what both those paths lead to, um, in one of the court cases, the defense team turns over 
a dossier of material saying, hey, look, this is, this is where we got this information from, and there's a thing in the facts across the top that said it was facts from an American press office. Uh, secondly, they start hearing a name of a guy who is, you know, have been going around the world paying people to run these articles, and they follow him, they locate him on Staten Island, and they start following him around, and one day they follow him to the offices of American Express where he meets somebody and has lunch, etc. Um, and what was revealed is that there were a couple of rogue employees in the PR unit that had concocted this idea to have a smear campaign against Edmund Safra and, you know, use their funds to execute it. Um, and when American Express was confronted with the evidence that Safra had gathered, they issued an apology and agreed to give uh, several million dollars to charities that Edmund Safra had stipulated. You know, he's an extraordinary figure. Um, I mean, I should note this show is called Too Jewish. Safra built uh, synagogues and now his foundation continues to support Jewish causes all around the world, um, including the renovation of a couple of um, tombs in Israel, uh, that of Rabbi Meir Balhanes, a miracle working rabbi, and Shimon Bar Yochai, perhaps the most important mystical figure in Jewish history. And that, um, uh, according to the story, that, that uh, Erev Shavuot, when you're supposed to stay up all night studying, Safra would pray at, uh, which is the yard site of his father, would pray at that tomb until dawn every year. I mean, his, his dedication was obvious and evident. Um, tell us a little bit about, because um, we're running short of time, the mystery of his death. Um, not maybe so much a mystery, but a great tragedy. So he died in, in 1999, uh, in December 1999. Um, you know, this story is in many ways a story of triumph, of, um, survival, of not only Edmund Stafford and his family and his community, the making of a vast fortune, but there are elements of tragedy in it as well, um, including, you know, the American Express attack. Uh, in the 1990s, while he's still in his early 60s, he is stricken with uh, Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease, right. which gets worse and worse and, and, um, eventually decides he can no longer run his bank and decides to sell them. Um, he was living in many places, but uh, in Monaco, and he had a team of around-the-clock nurses. One of the nurses on the staff was a, an American male nurse who had been in the Army and was probably mentally unstable and was insecure about his place in the household. The other nurses made fun of him, and he was not sure that he was going to have a job there, et cetera. So he decides that he's going to stage an attack on the resident, be the hero fending it off, and that will cement his place there. Um, so at four in the morning, he stabs himself with a knife. He sandpapers his face. He yells, there's an intruder. He lights a fire in the waste paper basket with some medical supplies to alert the, set up the fire alarm and get the first responders to come. Tells Edmund Safra, you know, wake up, there's a, there's an intruder, tell you to go in this dressing room, this room here with the nurse, with another nurse, and this guy leaves the building, comes down front, so it's been stabbed, etc. Uh, a series of events happens where the, the first responders, they can't get into the building, it has very sophisticated security with like electric shutters. Um, his security guards, who are all former Israeli, uh, Mossad and IDF, personnel who were at his villa, who was 20 minutes away, come and, and the police don't let them in. Um, 
they're calling him on the phone saying there are no intruders, they're gone, it's safe to come out, and he refuses to believe them and eventually dies. Meanwhile, the fire that had been set, the, the smoke is circulated by the, you know, the air conditioning systems in the apartment, uh, and he dies of asphyxiation. Uh, after a couple of hours. There's a million stories, it seems like. I, I shouldn't say a billion. That's <laughs> um, It's a remarkable book. Where can people go, Daniel, to find out more about you and to find out more about the book? Well, it's available on, obviously, Amazon is the leading place to buy books right now, but you can get it on barnesandnoble.com and plenty of other um, outlets. It's come out as an audio book as well, so anywhere you buy audio books, you can get it. Um, and we have a great website for the book itself, which is abakersjourney.com. Abakersjourney.com. Daniel, thank you so much. It's uh, my great pleasure to speak with you. When we come back on to Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest, get a final musical playout. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on Two Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be Steve Zeitlin, author of Jewels, teasing out poetry, a Jewish humor and storytelling entirely appropriate for Purim. And join us at Congregation Beit Simcha, Purim for Grownups 2, a raucous celebration of the wonderful Jewish holiday when all restrictions are lifted. We'll drink, gamble, have a wild, fun time, including a risque version of a great musical told as a Purim story, this Saturday night at 7.30 p.m. Join us at Congregation Beit Simcha every Friday night. Services in Onik Shabbat, 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning, 2, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in Kiddush, live in person and on our Facebook page. Our play out for Purim coming up this Saturday night, 7.30 p.m. at Beit Simcha, Purim for Grownups. And Monday night, our traditional Megillah reading at 6.30 is from past guest Michelle Citrin. It's her Caribbean-inflected Purim song, Shake Your Grogger. My friends, have a Shavuot Tov, a good week, a healthy week, and a week we pray profoundly of peace and an early Chag Purim Sameach. Named Haman, he tried to kill off the Jews, but thankfully, brave Esther saved us. She knew what to do with no time to lose. She jumped in the line, put her mask on, drank some okay. milk. I believe you. Jump in the line, everything will be fine. Okay. I believe you. Jump in the line, put your mask on, drink some okay. milk. I believe you. Jump in the line, everything will be fine. Okay. I As you shake, shake, shake your grudge, shake your grudge right. Shake it all in time. Work, 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 you gotta. Work your gotta right. Work, 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 you gotta. Work it all in time. Everyone's dressed up in costumes. We march around in parades. Cause us Jews, if you give us lemons, we'll make a lemonade. Jump in the line, 
Sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.